0: This week in Retronauts, my original plan was to talk about classic gaming at E3 2016, but it turned out there wasn't anything at E3 2016 that was really relevant. So instead, I dusted this pilot episode for a Game Boy World podcast that I never actually launched or followed through on as a substitute. So this week in Retronauts, it's Game Boy. <laughs> the inaugural episode, and we'll be talking about Game Boy. Yes, it's the first Game Boy World podcast. And with me here on the line, we have Brian O'Challa, also known as the Gay Gamer. Brian, you want to introduce yourself a bit, talk about your interest, why I've I've summoned you here, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) Uh,
1: Okay, well, uh, I have been interested in the Game Boy since I was a kid, since it came out in the mid 80s. Um, although I will admit I even though I owned a Game Boy and a bunch of games as a kid, you know, like four or five years later I sold all of it to probably to help uh buy another system. I actually have no idea why I sold them, but I do remember selling them. Um, and then a couple of years ago, I uh was reintroduced to it through a post on the Scroll magazine blog. Um about Nubo, uh, an IREM-made game for the Game Boy, and it kind of prompted me to start looking into other Japanese Game Boy games that I might have missed in all of the years that I hadn't owned a Game Boy. Um, And ever since then, things have gotten a little crazy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, your blog is a um, a really great resource for people who are interested in reading about obscure Game Boy games, especially import games. You seem to bring in a lot of games from Japan, Um, and even go for Japanese versions of games that have been released in the U.S., which I assume is because of the packaging.
1: Yeah, and uh, there are other reasons, too, especially some of them are only uh, Japan releases, so Mm. that um, has a lot to do with it. But yeah, the packaging, I'm a big uh, box art fan for all systems, and a lot of times, especially retro games, the packaging is better in Japan, in my mind, so that's where I go.
0: Well, and it's also hard to come by packaging for Game Boy games. As I've discovered, as I've been doing Game Boy World, it was a system that was really targeted toward kids, and kids tend not to be very responsible when it comes to how they treat their games. I mean, it's these little cartridges that you take on the go with you, so why would you keep the boxes? They're big and cumbersome and, and flimsy. So most people threw out their boxes and getting a hold of boxes for some of these games is just like, I want to tear out my hair sometimes. <laughs> I've, been, I've been looking for Boxel 2 for months and it's just not popped up. I know eventually, you know, eventually I'll find these games and hopefully whoever offers them won't be trying to sell them for ridiculous amounts. But it took me months to find Soccer Mania because who's ever heard heard of Soccer Mania? Like, yeah. it's it's an obscure game. And, uh, so, you know, when a copy did finally pop up, I was just like, this is more than I want to pay for it, but I need to photograph it. So whatever.
1: (laughs) Yeah. and, And you know, it's funny. It's when I remember as a kid owning all sorts of systems and I kind of want to kill myself for doing this now, but I remember just, I kind of got rid of the boxes after we bought the game. I kept the manual. I kept the box, like, especially with Game Boy games, they had the little plastic carrying case, but I just got rid of all the boxes, which I can't believe now. I would never do that now, but that's probably what's happened to a lot of people. So you're right. There are not that many boxes in existence, which is sad.
0: I I was actually really good about keeping boxes because the uh, NES and Super NES boxes fit perfectly into shoe boxes. So I could just have this, you know, this collection. I didn't own a Game Boy at the time, um, but, you know, then I was still stupid because I just sold off those games. I probably traded them to Funko for like 10% of what they were actually (laughs) worth. So yeah. Oh, well regrets of childhood. What can you do? But that's what (laughs) makes, that's what makes curating the past so interesting because everyone did that. And so there's a lot of information out there, just a lot of resources and materials that are really obscure. Like a lot of the stuff that I'm scanning and photographing, it's not online anywhere. Yeah. Um, And same with you. Like I've seen you post scans and photos of game packaging and, You know, if you do a search for those things, you'll find like a 100 by 100 pixel (laughs) thumbnail from Rakuten or something, (laughs) like you know, some some Japanese shop somewhere. But it's just like a thing in their database and their inventory. So so uh, I don't know, like I, I realize Game Boy is not a high priority for most people, but that's kind of why I'm doing Game Boy World, because precisely because it is such a sort of marginalized system that no one's really taken the time to properly curate and chronicle. Uh, whereas pretty much every other platform on the face of the planet, you can find information out there. But despite the the fact that it was the best-selling console of the 20th century, and it's got Nintendo's fanaticism surrounding it, it's just not that, I don't know, people just don't really care about Game Boy that much. So I, I want to yeah. give it some love. And uh, the fact that you're you're also kind of in the same, you have that same sort of affection for the system, uh, I think makes you a perfect choice to to you know come in and chat about uh, Game Boy and its history and what made it so great.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you.
0: Yeah. So thanks for for coming aboard. Um, I guess first of all, just for the sake of completeness, since this is a first episode, I should explain briefly what Game Boy is. It's a chrono gaming project that I'm I'm handling um, kind of in my spare time because that's how everyone does chrono gaming projects. Man, if I can make a living off of this, let me know. But um, uh, I'm pretty sure it's, it's doomed to be a side project for the rest of my life. But yeah, basically going through the Game Boy library in the order in which games were released in any region. So if it was released first in America, then I'll look at the game at the time of its U.S. release. But if it was released first in Japan, then... We'll look at when it came out in Japanese or, you know, in Japan um, just to kind of get a sense of how the platform evolved. Because, you know, there are a lot of games that were localized years after the fact. Um, In fact, I just recorded an episode on NFL, no, Soccer Mania that I just mentioned. um, And that was released in the U.S. like two years after the Japanese release. So just to kind of make things consistent and easy, that's how I'm doing it. Um, So primarily it's a video project, but... Uh, I'm also writing sort of revamped scripts into articles that I collect into books. And the books contain, whenever possible, full photography of packaging and manuals and stuff, just to sort of, um, you know, have a single resource, like a definitive resource for Game Boy. And I say definitive, but it's not because even though I'm, you know, trying to fact find, I can only get so much information on these obscure games without credits from Japanese developers that have been gone for the past twenty years. Like it's hard to find information on a lot of these things. I don't know the directors on most Game Boy games. It just wasn't that information wasn't available. So I'm kind of making the best of it. And, you know, I'm I'm talking about the qualities of the games and it's subjective. It's my opinion. I'm sure there are games that I'm writing about and saying, this was not very good. Well, I know for a fact that there are games I'm saying this is not very good where people have come in and said, no, actually, you're wrong. This game is something that I love and you're stupid and horrible. So, you know, I don't think Solar Striker's is very good, but apparently a lot of people do. So, like I said, it's, it's only definitive to a point, but it is a sort of single, hopefully all-encompassing resource. To, I, I want it to be as, as comprehensive as possible. And uh, so that is my, the, the bizarre burden that I've elected for myself. (laughs) And then, uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the chronicling you're doing is much less systematic and much more just like what catches your interest, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, to be honest, my blog, probably like a lot of blogs is all over the place. I pretty much started it to simply write about games and systems that interest me and not you know uh syst- games and systems that everybody else likes, so uh with all of my game boy posts, it's pretty much just games that have caught my attention that I'm as obsessed with that I like the packaging um you know I, last year and this year, I tried to kind of focus things on a, a, I called it last year the year of the game boy, and then since I didn't actually write about everything I bought last year, I've continued it as another year of the game boy, but um sure. you know, I wrote about the game boy before that, so. Um, it's kind of all over the place. Um, and you know, kind of like you, as I acquire things, <laughs> I write about them. Um, but definitely not in any kind of order or, uh, I'm definitely not trying to acquire all of the Game Boy games that have been published. Uh, you know, I can only imagine how interesting that has been for you so far.
0: Yeah. Spoiler alert. They're not all worth getting, but, yeah. um, yeah. It seems like some of the most obscure and worthwhile or least worthwhile games are also the most expensive and hard to find. Like, I don't really want Sumo Fighters. And the fact that the last boxed copy that sold on eBay went for $900 does not fill my heart with joy. Yes. That's one of those that's probably going to be something of a gap in the library. And there's a lot of games that are easy to get the the cartridges. Like, you can find any bare cart you want. It's no problem. Yep. And usually pretty cheaply. But as soon as you factor in the box, even the manuals aren't that hard to find, but the boxes, yeah. So I'm doing what I can. But yeah, the uh, Game boy world obviously was inspired by stuff like Crontendo, but it's also kind of the culmination of just my own attempts to sort of systematize the writing I was doing. I feel like, you know, when I just write about whatever, I tend to write about the stuff that I like. And after doing that for 10 years professionally and even longer just on my own, uh, you know, it gets kind of repetitive. Like I always have something new to say about something I love, but I don't know if someone really wants to see me write about Super Metroid again. (laughs) So this is a way to sort of um, have a system in place where I have to stretch and I have to write about things that I don't know, spend time with games that I would never have touched otherwise. Like I don't really want to play Soccer Mania and it's not very good, but I've done it and I recorded video for it. So it exists. And, um, so, you know, there's a bit of discipline to it and it does mean that when I get to something good, I can really just revel in it and say, ah, yeah, this is what it was all about. Like Mm -hmm. the, the space invaders episode that I recently put together was much to my surprise. Um, a lot of fun because, you know, space invaders, big deal, you know, that, that game's ancient, but, what they did, what Taito did with the, uh, the, the later Game Boy release that Nintendo published in America, uh, where they basically stuck a Super NES cartridge or any, Super NES ROM inside the Game Boy cartridge that can only be accessed through a Super Game Boy. That's crazy. Like yeah. that never happened on the platform any other time. So finding little nuggets like this is just great. So yeah. so yeah, that's kind of the the methodology there. Anyway, so I was thinking this Game Boy World podcast segment um, could basically be treated like Game Boy World, where we start at the beginning and just kind of go through and talk about all these games. I don't know if you've played all the Game Boy launch lineup titles. Uh, yes. Oh, definitely. Even Yakuman? Uh,
1: through emulation,
0: yes. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it's it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think you're not getting the authentic Yakuman experience if you're playing on an <laughs> emulator. It's it's okay. Um, yeah, so basically just begin from the beginning. Um, and I suppose the beginning would be with the Game Boy hardware itself. I've written a lot about the Game Boy hardware and about its main designer, Gunpei Yokoi, and just kind of the, the strengths and weaknesses of the system relative to its competition, like the Atari Lynx, uh, the Sega Game Gear. So I kind of feel like that's a, like my opinions are known. So, if you don't mind, why don't you give us the lead-in to Game Boy, and uh, hmm. maybe maybe you'll have a different way of approaching it than I normally would. Um, okay, well, so
1: I guess the only way I can lead into it is just something I've been thinking about lately in terms of how people in general kind of view the Game Boy today compared to how they did when it came out, and I pretty vividly remember, you know, the late 90s, 89, when it came out in the United States. Um, And to me, you know, like today it's kind of looked back on as this brick antiquated system, pea green screen. Um, But I have really vivid memories of just thinking about it in awe as a kid, as it was a portable NES, even though, you know, it wasn't technically, but that's how I thought about it. Possibly because even though, you know, game and watch existed, uh, stuff like that, I didn't consider those real game systems and I considered the Game Boy a real game system. So, um, I think that's one of the things that brought me back to it is just at its base, it is kind of the, one of the first mainstream portable game systems, um, that had actual cartridges that went into it as opposed to, you know, coming loaded with games, um, I I guess that's maybe not the lead-in you were expecting, but um, I don't know. I think it's interesting to to change the perspective and not just think of it as this antiquated piece of hardware. But um, at the time, it had a lot going for it. Even games like baseball and alleyway, which, you know, are kind of derided now. At the time, um, it was exciting that you could play baseball on the go wherever you were, um, or tennis or or Tetris. So, um, I don't know. I,
0: it, is that what you're looking for? Sure. That's an interesting perspective. I don't know that I necessarily share it, but um, it's, huh. it's a, it's an interesting way to approach it. And, um, yeah, I mean, at the time there was like a lot of, wow, I can't believe it. This, this game system is going to be portable and I'll be able to play Castlevania anywhere. And uh, of yeah. course, you know, there were the tiger handheld games at the time and, and Game Boy's own predecessor, the Game & Watch system or the series. Yeah. Um, but this was something different. This was more like this was more like real video games, as opposed to the sort of simplistic uh, creations with the pre-printed LCD screens. Uh, you know, Game and Watch and the Tiger handhelds almost felt like they they felt more in in line in spirit with old electromechanical games that you'd seen in arcade yeah. than necessarily a video game as you think of a video game. And, you know, I had I had little handheld LED electronics back in the early 80s. Um, So, you know, the the idea of playing a portable game on the go wasn't that new, but with this kind of quality, it was. Yeah. Although, you know, you you say it, it seems antiquated now, but even even back then to people in the know, it still felt antiquated because it was a step behind. Uh, Atari's Game Gear, or Atari's Lynx, which had you know begun development three years before Game Boy launched. And there was a, a quote that someone dug up recently from Gunpei Yokoi uh, who said that it was a challenge convincing the rest of Nintendo to go forward with his plan to release a monochrome game system. Mm. Like To everyone at Nintendo, it seemed like a terrible idea. Uh, and he had to really work hard to convince people, like, no, this is this is what it should be. This is what we should be doing. I, I realize it seems counterintuitive to kind of take this backward step and not produce something that's on the level of of uh, of Links, but this is the right choice. And definitely, history bore that out. I mean, the the Game Boy just completely stomped Links, and it wasn't just due to marketing. Yeah. Uh it was due to the, you know, the the realities of portable gaming like you want something that's going to have good battery life and the Lynx did not. So it was worth the compromise of color to come up with something that was you know, was was going to be more portable and more more practical and cheaper on on battery expenses too. Um but it, it took, you know, a bit of vision to see that. And at the time, I you know, I still remember reading magazines where I guess Electronic Gaming Monthly or video games and computer entertainment where there was kind of this like chuckling behind their hands about Game Boy compared to Lynx. And especially once Game Gear came out. Yep. Um, so, so there definitely was a sense of like, yeah, this is, this is kind of underpowered and puny, but you know, that's sort of at the professional level at the kids level, the consumer level of nine year olds, 10 year olds, who cares? It's Mario and you can play it in, you know, in your car. <laughs> right
1: well in final fantasy and castlevania and metro you know i think at least from what i remember i liked the game gear and the links as a kid but they didn't have the same games so why did it matter if they were in color i don't know
0: the the nintendo connection really counted for a lot because nintendo did have sort of this suite of franchises not just first party but also third party that were just associated with with nintendo with nes And so even though Game Boy was much less powerful than the NES in terms of game processing power and and resolution and color, um, Game Boy still did feel like a portable NES because in the first year you did have Mario, like you said, Tetris, you had all those Nintendo sports games, you had Fist of the North Star, you had Final Fantasy, you had Castlevania, you had um, Batman. Uh, Wizards and Warriors, so it was like all these games that you associated with with NES, and they were right there at the beginning of Game Boy. So yeah. uh, they they did a really good job, and you know their partners did a good job of of making of, of creating the impression that oh hey yes it's NES on the go, and uh, that that counts for a lot. It really made a big difference. So um, you actually owned a Game Boy back at the at the time of its real life i guess you would say yeah like did you did you get that early or later um
1: it's funny i've been thinking about this too lately i owned it sometime within the first six months of its release i was never uh my parents were never the sort that i got a system you know on launch day or anything um but i definitely had one probably by that christmas or you know whatever the nearest holiday was um and I definitely owned i think I owned all of the launch games except for baseball at some point um so yeah, I definitely was into it early on uh had friends who had game boys, we played them
0: together, that kind of thing so it was a it was a social thing for you or was it just like I love video games and I want portable video games
1: um i I think for me it was mostly we played together at the same time not with like a link cable um Mm. i guess kind of both but not necessarily you know how it was later with pokemon and linking up and and everything but
0: well that that's still social gaming like when you're hanging out with a friend and you're both kind of doing the same thing even if you're not doing it together there's still like this bond that you share so i think that's i think you can definitely call that social
1: yeah and i distinctly remember uh, a neighbor friend who had a Game Boy and like baseball and tennis uh, right at launch. And we would stand or, you know, we'd sit at each other's houses and someone would get to play, you know, you get to play a round of tennis. And then if you lose and then you hand off the Game Boy to the next person, they get to play until they lose. Um, for some reason, I have memories of that too.
0: Yeah, myself, I, I never owned a Game Boy and it wasn't for lack of interest. It was just, um, I only had so much money in my gaming budget And I was pretty deep into the NES. And then when Mm -hmm. the Super NES came out, um, that was around the time I got my first job, like a year later. So, you know, my money from my job either went to save it for the future because I knew I would be going to college um, or buying Super NES games. So as much as the the Game Boy interested me, I just never, like, I just didn't have room for it in my budget. Mm -hmm. I would have had to give up on some NES game or Super NES game that I wanted. And uh, I just couldn't bring myself to do that. So um, I did end up getting a Super Game Boy um, sometime after it came out and caught up with, like, Metroid and uh, Zelda and some other essentials. Um, But I didn't really get that much use out of the Super Game Boy because I got it right before I took sort of, like, a one-year hiatus from gaming. Uh, And so I kind of of missed out. By the time I, I got back and became interested again, um you know super nes was pretty mature and i had a bunch of great games like final fantasy 6 and chrono trigger to play and the super the the n64 was just around the corner so super game boy never seemed that much of a priority hmm. so i'm kind of i'm kind of approaching game boy world in in some ways as like a uh, almost i wouldn't say with regret but more like here is this sort of Vacancy, this void in my gaming history that I wanted to fill, but couldn't at the time. So circumstances just never allowed it. Here's a chance for me to actually see what I missed out on. And uh, then, you know, take that to the, like an extreme, a ridiculous extreme. Um, But yeah, like the the closest I really came to Game Boy at the time, uh, my brother had a friend whose father uh, bought him and his friend, both Game Boy's, so whenever they when they hung out together, they could play video games. My brother wasn't really into video games, so he had this game boy that he barely ever used. but brothers being brothers, he didn't want me to play it either. Uh, I, think, <laughs> I think partly because um he played it some and found it really frustrating and Then he lent it to me on a car trip and in the space of less than an hour, I played Super Mario Land for the first time and and beat it and he was <laughs> He was really peeved about that that I finished the game before him so It was basically just kind of like in its original box, locked away, like I just knew I wasn't allowed to touch it. So Uh I didn't get to play it much. My grandparents eventually got a Game Boy, but by that point, I was, you know, that was years later and it was mostly for my younger cousins. So it was always kind of like this glancing blow, me and the Game Boy, never, never destined to line up together. So I'm, I'm rectifying that, I guess.
1: And what, what prompted you
0: to come back to it for Game Boy World? Portable gaming really is something that I fell in love with at the very end of the nineties. You know, the, the PlayStation era really put the kibosh on 2d classic gaming. Uh, everything became 3d. I think N 64 had like three games that would be count, counted as 2d games. Yeah. Um, and PlayStation had more Saturn obviously had a lot, but they were all stranded in Japan um, and PlayStation, like I said, had a bunch, but most of them weren't very good. The system just wasn't geared for it. So so portable gaming became sort of this refuge where the games that I'd grown up playing and still loved could find a place of expression. Of course, most Game Boy, Game Boy Color games were really terrible. Um, you know, you had a lot of 2D platformers, but they were mostly crap. They were like, you know, the 2D platformer version of Turok or Perfect Dark. No one, <laughs> no one wants to play that. That's awful. Um, but... You know it, it kind of kept me going and then the Neo Geo pocket came out mm. and that was revelatory I was like wow this is pretty much you know Sega Genesis quality visuals um really great thoughtful gameplay uh, it, it lived a very short life but that was the point at which I was like you know I really like I really see value in portable gaming I started traveling a lot and didn't always want to be you know, sitting in front of a television because I sit in front of a computer screen all the time for work. So, so yeah, portable gaming kind of became a big thing for me when it became sort of an alternative way to play as opposed to, um, you know, bef- before Neo Geo Pocket, it was really just sort of like um, the sort of second best approach to gaming. Whereas once it hit that point where it was, you know, like console, classic console quality, it's not feeling like a compromise and more like just this is a different method of playing games. So from the game, you know, Neo Geo Pocket, Game Boy Advance, um, I was pretty much fully invested. So, you know, I kind of gradually shed my my sort of dismissal of the Game Boy. Um, I mean, you could go back and read articles I wrote when I first started working at 1up.com 10, 12 years ago, where I'm like, yeah, most Game Boy games haven't held up. It's stupid. Um, <laughs> to To sort of, you know spending more time coming to appreciate what was happening on the system and just its its place in video game history. Uh, so, you know, as, as I became kind of like the guy in the mainstream press who wrote about DS games all the time, um, the Game Boy just started to seem more, more important to me. So I put together with some friends a book, kind of just like a loose chronicle of the Game Boy's history for its 20th anniversary. Um, In 2009 and then just never really felt like that did the system justice so it was always sort of on my mind to tackle the Game Boy and once I found Crontendo like the idea of oh doing that for Game Boy seemed pretty intuitive for me but it took me three or four years to finally get around to actually committing to it because I wanted to make sure that I had the means to do it and the time, I don't really have the time, but I'm at least willing to try to make the commitment and the methodology. I just wanted to make sure that it was I was doing it right. And I feel like everything kind of lined up for me a year ago, last year, uh, for the 25th anniversary, and I finally just pulled the trigger and said, yeah, it's time to do this. So hmm. anyway, that's my long, boring story about Game Boy. <laughs> so I wasn't there at, at the time. I was kind of an outside observer, but This is my chance to stop being the the lonely face outside looking in the window and actually just (laughs) take part in it. So, you know, a lot of a lot of what I read about Game Boy is not coming from a place of of nostalgia. It's coming more from a place of like, you know, I'm approaching this in 2015 and it's not necessarily great. But I also understand the context of the time. I remember what gaming was like in 1989, 1990. And I've read a lot of history and know what was happening on platforms that I wasn't even aware of. So I feel like I have the necessary context to, if not necessarily appreciate the games, because some of them are hard to appreciate, then at least respect where they came in. And then, you know, when something really genuinely terrible comes along, um, I feel like I I have enough enough awareness of history and, and everything to be able to say, Yeah, this game actually is garbage.
1: Yeah. Although then there's the flip side too. I mean, I think one thing I've found uh, in just collecting the games that are good or that I like is that despite the fact that maybe the crap, you know, hugely outweighs the great games, there are a few, you know, uh, inarguably great games for the system that hold up despite the fact that they were made for it. And I think those are the ones that are, the most interesting to me, just how someone was able to produce such greatness on, you know, such limited technology.
0: Mm -hmm. There's that. And there's also just the little surprises. The games aren't necessarily like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever, but, (laughs) oh, hey, this is good. This is fun. This is interesting. Uh, You know, Atlas's Quirk is one of those games. Like, I had no idea what it was. It was this tomato on the Mm -hmm. cover with sunglasses and a mohawk. So not really promising, but then it turns out that it's actually a really good sort of um, puzzly Sokoban kind of game, uh, much better than Boxel, the actual conversion of Sokoban to Nintendo. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: so yeah, it, it's been things like that. Uh, the Sword of Hope was really interesting. It was like this weird midpoint between uh, ICOM simulations and, or, you know, graphical adventures and RPGs. Um, kind of reminds me of Riviera the Promised Land, which Sting developed, you know, 20 years later um so just just finding things like that uh has been really enjoyable the the downside has been that i've come across a lot of puzzle action games (laughs) that would be really notable on any other system but on game boy where that's like 50 percent of the content i'm just like okay yeah here's another puzzle action game and uh it sure is puzzly and actiony gosh (laughs) Uh, so so there is a tendency for the, the sort of repetition to cause you know worthwhile in entertaining well-made games to become sort of lost, which is unfortunate yeah. So the Game Boy launched in April 1989 in Japan and then came out in America August or September of 1989. It's not really clear. I'm pretty sure it's August, but there's no specific date um, that I've been able to find looking through all kinds of news sources. uh, Just August. Um, And then made it to Europe sometime in 1990, and I don't even know when in 1990. I've I've pretty much factored Europe out of the Game Boy World discussion. There will be some Europe-exclusive games, but like... The European market was so fragmented and just incoherent uh, at the time that it's really hard to track down any definitive history. And that wasn't Nintendo's main focus anyway. So, so really focusing on Japan and the U.S. primarily, primarily Japan, uh, despite my U.S. location and history, just because that's where most of the games were being developed. That that does change later in the Game Boy's life. Uh, You start to see a lot of American developed games, Western developed games, but at the beginning it was all Japan all the time. Yeah. So actually I think the first, the first Western developed game didn't come along until the beginning of 1990, which was wizards and warriors. And uh, I don't even know if that was actually developed internally at rare. There's no credits for it. No information anywhere online. So for all I know that was sourced out to Tose or something, which will explain (laughs) why it's kind of crappy, but yeah, just uh, again, hard to find all these specifics, but when the Game Boy launched in Japan, it came with four games. It came with Alleyway, Baseball, Super Mario Land, and Yakuman. And uh why don't we why don't we actually talk about Yakuman first since it was the one that didn't come to the US? Do you have any experience with Yakuman? <laughs>
1: uh I do, but it's a weird thing because uh at various times in my life I have attempted to learn how to play Mahjong and uh between those times i always forget and then i have to relearn um so as someone who does not have the greatest understanding of it it doesn't hold um a lot of value and interest but i guess you know at, at its basic level it is portable mahjong and black and white um or the game boy and i know i know you've pointed out how it's notable just for kind of bringing in the adult crowd and i i think for that reason alone it's interesting but um Probably the, the game that's held up the least out of the four, in my opinion, I would guess.
0: Yeah, Mahjong games and Japanese consoles are kind of a tradition. Basically, when you launch a console in Japan, you publish a Mahjong game for it. And I don't know exactly what it is, but it's kind of like... I don't even know if there's an equivalent to the West. I guess now there's like Texas Hold'em or something. But I can't think of anything in the past where you see, or even now, where you see a video game adaptation of some sort of non-sports pastime that's just going to be at the launch of every system. <laughs> but yeah, this was this was Game Boy's obligatory console launch Mahjong game. And to me, the most interesting thing about Yakuman is that it shows right at the beginning Nintendo building the Game Boy by drawing on their previous history. So, you know, Game Boy was developed by Gunpei Yokoi, who had developed the Game & Watch system or series. And most people think of Game & Watch as just, like, the little handhelds with the screens, you know, Octopus or Ball or Mario Cement Factory or whatever. And, you know, there there were those, the really kind of low-end, inexpensive systems. Um, But there were a few premium... uh, game and watch systems. And one of them was called Yakuman and it was this sort of unusually shaped, uh, game and watch. It was much more expensive than most. And the screen was specifically set up for playing Mahjong. So, you know, it had to have this extremely wide resolution to show all the tiles that you had in your hand and, uh, give them adequate detail. So, uh, so, yeah, kind of uh, kind of interesting just that at the very beginning, Nintendo was like, hey, remember that Yakuman game we made before, the Mahjong game? Let's try to turn that into, a, uh, into something for Game Boy. And you, you can sort of see its origins because aside from the title screen, Yakuman uses no grayscale whatsoever. It's just mm. black and white. So it's clearly like they were clearly looking to the Game & Watch for inspiration. All the other all the other launch titles have, you know, a full... They make full use of the four shades of gray available for Game Boy, but, but Yakuman's just two-tone. Um, so that's that's kind of a, a little interesting factoid. But at the same time, like, I have trouble being excited about it because I don't even understand Japanese Mahjong. <laughs> I, I watched some tutorial videos and it was just like, hmm, I don't know. But, you know, I, I can't really... I can't really say whether or not it was done well, but to the game's benefit, to its credit, it did have it did make use right away of the the link cable. The idea was that you could link up with someone else, and instead of just playing mahjong against the computer, play against another person, which I'm sure was much more entertaining. Yeah, that's actually um, something that kind of became a uh, <clears throat> a Game Boy standard is that there's at least for competitive games, there's the single player mode, which isn't that fun. And then you have a link cable mode, which is much more entertaining, but it presumes that, you know, someone who has a game boy and also the game you want, which you can't always count on, but you know, it's, it's good optimism. And at least the option is there for, uh, for breaking away from the mundanity of playing against the CPU. <laughs> so obviously that one never came to the U S um, it's very Japanese in every sense. And yeah, like like you mentioned, um, I, I do feel it does represent a play for the older audience, which is something Game Boy was... I don't know if that was the intention at the beginning. I mean, they did call it Game Boy. But at least in the US, the system was pretty heavily marketed toward adults. There were a lot of commercials that didn't show kids playing. They showed like businessmen playing. So the idea was yeah, you're you're going to be taking all these boring business trips, so why not do something fun? And obviously those people probably weren't meant to be playing Super Mario Land, but <laughs> more sort of neutral, non-character, non-cartoony type games, yep. such as baseball. You, you said baseball was the one launch game you've never owned, right? Yep. Is that because you don't like baseball as a game, <laughs> or is it because you don't like baseball for Game Boy? Um... To be honest, baseball has
1: never been my sport. So it's just not something that interested me. In um, you know, I think I can count on less than one hand how many baseball games I've owned in my life, probably RBI baseball for the NES. And I think that's probably about it. So wasn't really uh, my kind of thing. But like I said, I've played it. Uh, in fact, I played it this weekend, just to, to follow up with it. It's you know, kind of like Yakuman. it's very uh bare bones presentation of baseball. Uh, I think you've written about that too. Just um not a whole lot of power. You know, you don't have a whole lot of control over what's going on and it's very uh straightforward in how it's showcased. Um I don't know. How about you? What are, what yeah, are your thoughts it, on it?
0: It is very similar. You mentioned RBI baseball and it's very similar to that in that it is a sort of rudimentary take on baseball i mean it's pretty clearly patterned after nintendo's nes baseball but it's a step down from that which is a shame because nes baseball i think i'm pretty sure that came out in japan in 1983 um so you're you're looking at a baseball game that is not as good as a six-year-old console game so that's a problem right there. You know, at, at launch, though, it was pretty much what there was. Yeah. Uh, you have two different teams um, with, like, four potential pitchers. And that's about it. You take turns hitting um, and pitching, and you try to field the game. The CPU is much better at all of this than you are. <laughs> and, you know, it's one. it's one of those games where the CPU gets to be better than you naturally because the game doesn't do a good job of giving you the information you need. Mm -hmm. Um, Like when someone hits the ball into the outfield, the camera is very slow to follow and track the ball. So you don't really know where your fielders are and what you're trying to do. It's kind of the, the game Boy's resolution limitations coming into play. That that's something that happens a lot with, uh, with adaptations of NES games, there's there's sort of this essential compromise that designers had to make. They had to say, well, do we want to give people detailed graphics where things are very big on the screen, but because of the lower resolution, you see less of their surroundings, or do we want to show them the same like screen proportions that you would get on NES, with a sprite taking up the same percentage of the screen as it would on NES, but this means everything's going to be tiny and almost indistinguishable. So... you you see this kind of back and forth and people make different decisions, you know, different, different studios make different decisions for different games. Um, unfortunately I think baseball airs more on the side of big graphics. They're not amazing. They're very kind of primitive, but they're still sort of cartoonish and detailed in, in a way. And it means you see less of the screen than you do on NES. Like if you compare a baseball screen on Game Boy to baseball, Nintendo's baseball on NES, you're just like, oh, yeah, this is like half the view. Um, So it becomes naturally sort of difficult that way. Again, this is a game where you can link up with someone and play head-to-head, and all of a sudden it becomes like, oh, yeah, now we're both equally disadvantaged. So (laughs) if it's not fun, then it's at least equitable. Yeah. And that's also kind of a theme through a lot of a lot of uh, sports games I've noticed they're They're definitely my least favorite part of uh, Game Boy World, although I haven't gotten to to horse racing games yet that could that could take the prize. We'll see. Mm. But sports games have so far been pretty bad, except golf, which is not a, sp- a team sport, so maybe it's just the team sport concept not working on Game Boy.
1: Although I, well, I mean, I know we'll get to that eventually, but I I liked a few of the tennis games on Game Boy, but then again, I like tennis as a sport, so that's probably influencing my
0: my opinion of the matter. No, I think that's fair. Um, I don't think Nintendo's first tennis game was that good, but I, I'm willing to believe that there were some good tennis games eventually and good sports games in general. Yeah. Um, I know like, I, like I keep bringing up soccer mania just because I just played it and it's garbage. But, um, you know, Nintendo released Nintendo cup soccer, which was actually a Kunio kun game. One of the mini Kunio kun sports games, downtown Niketsu soccer or whatever. I don't know. Um, so I imagine that's probably going to be pretty good because Technos, a millionaire million, whatever. um, they, they tended to make pretty good sports games. Yeah, But it's a ways before I get to that. So in, instead I'm still reeling from soccer mania. <laughs> so those were kind of the two weak games of the launch. Uh, I say that about Yakuman, not really having the knowledge, the cultural knowledge and, and knowledge of the game necessary to make a full judgment, but that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Um, but the, uh, the next two games, I think, were a lot stronger. Um, Alleyway and Super Mario Land. Uh, we, we can talk about Alleyway first. That was um, that was also an adaptation of a previous Nintendo game, though not a handheld game. It was um, one of their first television... Actually, it might have been their first television game, uh, Block Kuzushi, or Block Breaker, uh, which was part of... Uh, yeah, just their, their early line of pre-Famicom... Standalone home console games. Uh, I can't even really call them console because there was there was no there were no cartridges to interchange. It was just a game system that played one game. Yeah. But pretty much it's just a straight breakout clone.
1: Uh, well, it's an interesting one. I mean, I've always liked it. I've kind of had a soft spot for it. But even at the like, I'm sure you've said at the time it was it paled in comparison to games like Arkanoid that offered more, that were colorful, that had you know, power ups and in, in various uh, different styles of play. And so, I mean, I'm sure even at the time it was looked upon as, again, kind of archaic. But I think for what it does, it it, it does it acceptably, um, you know, and it has the kind of obligatory, here's a Mario sprite as a as a board and here's a blooper or, you know, different a Nintendo characters thrown in there for good measure. And I think Mario is actually in the little paddle, um, so I don't know. I, I remember as a kid, I really liked it. I've always kind of liked those, uh, block breaking games. So I think, you know, in terms of when it was released and even now, I mean, it's acceptably good fun. It's nothing amazing. Um, I thought it did what it was supposed to do at the time, I guess, which maybe isn't, you know, it's kind of faint praise, but.
0: No, I think that's fair. I mean, it was, it was a little hard to play the game and get much out of it. If you had already played Arkanoid, uh, which was, I think, 1986 in the arcades and had already come to to NES with its own special controller and everything. Um, so, you know, by comparison, Alleyway is very simple. There are no power-ups. Uh, it's basically you hit the ball and once you, I believe, you hit the back of the screen, the very top, your, your paddle shrinks. And, of course, the ball gets a little faster as it travels along. So it gets harder as you play, but... It doesn't really feel organic. It's basically just like, oh, you did this one thing, so now the game is harder, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's it's um, it was also kind of tough to play on the NES or the uh, the Game Boy screen because of the the lag and the, yes. the sort of dimness of it. Um, the ball gets moving pretty quickly toward the end, and your paddle's very tiny, and you don't have you know a digital uh, a uh, an analog controller like the Arkanoid controller. It's just the digital D pad. So uh a little a little tough to play. Um it's easier on, you know, better hardware like a Game Boy Pocket or Super Game Boy, uh, or if you get it on virtual console. Um if you get it on virtual console, you can do save states and see the end, but to me that's kind of missing the point. Like, why why would you play an arcade style game like this uh and just cheat your way to the end? Like yeah. I, I could understand if it were, you know, more like a platformer or something, but this is really just a rudimentary, basic concept of video games. It's like one step above pawn, so I don't know that you really need to cheat necessarily. And you know, if you if you practice, you can make it to the end. I think there's like 20 levels, so it's not like um, you know some daunting <laughs> hardcore challenge. It's a pretty short game. Yeah. But the uh, the 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 custom boards where you know. Um, you have the bonuses with the Nintendo sprites, like you mentioned, and then some of the, the tricks they start to play later where different layers of this the blocks rotate at different directions at different speeds. Um, that can add a little challenge. It keeps it from being just Atari's Breakout, which is good because Breakout was like 15 years old at this point. So it would have been really kind of embarrassing if they couldn't at least you know one-up it over Breakout. Um, but you know it's not it's not an amazing game uh but it's still it's still a fun few minutes of diversion um it was it was pretty much you know a perfect game if you were sitting in a car or something and needed to kill 15 minutes of time just plug that in and play and then you're like okay that, that's good i'm not bored of of other things as much as i am this now yeah so good diversion Um, the crown jewel of Game Boy's launch, which was Super Mario Land. And I've written a lot about this one, so I'm going to turn the floor over to you, Brian, and let you uh, tell the world why Super Mario Land is amazing. Or is it it amazing, actually? Uh, Well, I mean, it's definitely
1: interesting. Um, You know, especially coming from where Nintendo was and where its systems were at the time and where the Super Mario series was at the time. Um, it was kind of an interesting release in that it, in some ways, was either, depending on how you look at it, a step back or a return to its roots with kind of a more straightforward um, presentation of Super Mario aesthetics and gameplay, um, you know, coming from, I think, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, It was it released between two and three or
0: after 3 i can't remember um are you talking about in america or japan
1: oh well okay my my perspective is from america
0: yeah see that's that's what i think is interesting i i feel like the there are two different ways to see super mario land and it's kind of depending on how you were following mario at the time because in japan you had super mario brothers you had super mario brothers 2 the lost levels then you had super mario brothers 3 in 1988 so you have this very clear line of continuity for Mario games. So Mario Land, which is kind of weird, it's not developed by Nintendo EAD. It was developed by R&D One. Uh, and uh, it's it's different. It doesn't have input from the normal Mario team. So it's kind of, kind of this weird alternate world where the physics are a little different, your powers are a little different. Sometimes it's a shooter. You're traveling through lands with different themes different monsters. Um, It's just an oddball game. So, you know, coming from the Japanese perspective, where it was like one, two, three, then Mario Land, it's like this weird, bizarre side venture. But in America, we had Super Mario Brothers. Then we had Super Mario Brothers 2, which wasn't actually Mario. It was some other game in disguise as Mario and played pretty much nothing like the original Mario Brothers. And then you had Mario Land. Super Mario Brothers 3 wouldn't come out until 1990, Mm -hmm. Like six months after the Game Boy's launch, so at that point there was no like set role, set set definition for Mario. Like Mario games could be whatever they wanted to be on NES. You had Wrecking Crew, Mario Brothers, Super Mario Brothers, Super Mario Two. You know, it was like everything that starred Mario and had Mario in the title was some weird, different kind of game. So to me, like Mario Land was just another one of those. It was like, oh well, here's Mario, kind of, kind of playing in a game more like the uh, the original Mario Brothers or Super Mario Brothers. In some ways, it felt almost like a return to his roots, like you mentioned. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, that's that's just because we had seen all these like weird side ventures and weren't as far along as the Japanese gamers. But Mario Three was really more of a return to Mario's roots but we didn't know it yet unless we'd seen The Wizard.
2: <laughs> right.
0: And I did not go see The Wizard because, I, yeah. I didn't who would, either. Who would spend money? On <laughs> Come on. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the, the, the game is pretty unusual. Um, I mentioned it was developed by Nintendo R&D One, and I think I have the names of the folks who worked on it here. Uh, yeah. Uh, Satoru, Satoru Okada... Gunpei Yokoi, Hip Tanaka, Makoto Kano, all these people worked on Mario games in the past, but they weren't Super Mario games. they were Mario Brothers wrecking crew. so hmm. they had they had a claim to working on Mario they like they had a stake in the series in the franchise. it just wasn't the games that most people associate with Mario so so you know Super Mario Land was kind of like their return to the franchise after five years, five years in which the series had developed radically from when they had last worked on it. So uh, I kind of feel like what they came up with was sort of their own like old-school take on Mario, if, if you will. Um, they weren't really... They were kind of making a Super Mario Brothers game, but also just kind of doing it their own way. Um, and looking at where the Mario Land series went after this... It's it's easy to see that this is the first step in an evolution of its own thing. Eventually it became Wario Land, which technically like on the on the sort of macro level, yeah, it's Mario Brothers, but once you get beyond that sort of, you know, you're running and jumping and hitting things, the the two series could not be more different. Um, yes. And this was this was kind of the inflection point for that. It started with Mario, but weird Mario and then became weirder the further they went. <laughs> So was this was this one you ordered what you owned at the time? This was not a pack-in game, surprisingly. Like I think people would have expected Mario to be the pack-in game, but Tetris was. It was something you had to buy separately.
1: But I would guess. I mean, I definitely probably bought it along with the system, and I'm guessing a lot of kids did. Um, And I don't know. I think it's an interesting thing to to look like today. It's not really a game that I go back to all that often. It's not something I bought for like my 3DS through the eShop. I don't really long to replay it, but going back and playing it now, I mean, I can appreciate it. And I know at the time when it came out, it didn't bother me that, you know, the graphics are kind of like oddly minimalist. Everything's smaller and, um, you know, some of the power-ups are strange um I do remember as a kid I really liked kind of the alien Egyptian theme <laughs> and I loved really? the I've always loved the shootem shootem up stages um so it's funny I know as a kid I really loved it and these days I don't it's not something I really think about but I do think it's still enjoyable unlike some of the other launch games I think you can still have fun with it even though I'm sure it feels a lot different to people who are used to kind of uh, you know, a Mario that's a little floatier when he jumps and um the difficulty, you certainly can die a lot of times in Super Mario Land compared to uh some of the more modern games.
0: Yeah, it's difficult, but at the same time it's not hard because yeah. the game's very generous with one-ups. Yeah. And uh I, you know, you can you can get pretty far into the game on, on your first try. Like I said, the first time I ever played it, I finished it. Um, I actually am worse at it now than I was back then because <laughs> I was like some kind of kind of video game Rain Man, seriously. Um, but but even so, it's not that hard, and it's a very short game. It's like twelve yes. levels, yep. and several of those are shooters, which are very easy. Um, and every bo- every every level has its own boss. It's not just Bowser at the end of every level, which is kind of novel. Like the Mario games don't tend to be very diverse with bosses. Even Mario three, it was always you know, one of the Koopa kids or that dude in the uh in the the airship. What was his name? The guy with oh, the, the helmet. I know. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, that guy. <laughs> so um so, you know, there's already more diversity in this game than in a in a typical Mario game in some senses. I mean, I'm not going to say that this game is more diverse than Mario three, because that would be ridiculous.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, that game is like just a grab bag of crazy ideas. Uh, but you know there there are a lot of fun ideas going on here. I do like like you said the themes, not just the uh, the Egyptian theme, but I also like the Chinese theme, where yeah. you have the kyonchi jumping at you, and there's like spiders in the the trees and everything. It's just got you know like a very sort of uh, Chinese watercolor background with bamboo and everything. Uh, it's just it's all very different for Mario and it's a good look on him, like just, you know, breaking out of the usual Mario games have become so systematic now, which isn't to say they're not well-made. It's just like, you're not going to be surprised by any world you encounter in Mario games at this point. Yeah. It's always like there's a desert level and there's a fire level and there's an ice level and there's a forest level and there's a water level. Yeah. Okay, great. So Mario Land has, you know, a more adventurous outlook. Um, than, than contemporary Mario games do. So that's also something kind of nice.
1: Yep. And and too, it's clearly out of the f- the four launch games. I mean, it's one of the only ones that actually features more than a single screen. You know, I mean, your sc- it's kind of like right. uh, what Super Mario Brothers did to the Famicom and the NES in that um, it showed that you can go beyond a single screen and kind of legitimized it to me as a game system because, hey, it's a Mario game. You can run from left to right and there are different worlds. I don't know. That's how I always looked at it.
0: No, I think that's a worthwhile point to make. Um, you know, at the very beginning, you have to keep in mind that there was no such thing as a handheld game market at this point. There were Game and & Watches and the, the Atari Lynx was in development but didn't actually launch until after Game Boy. So there was no indication that you could have real console game, video game experiences on a handheld. And I think you know, the low power and just the the unproven nature of the system at, at the beginning caused Nintendo to take a very conservative approach. And not just Nintendo, but like all the, all the early games, you know, the first six months of the Game Boy's life, really until you get to Castlevania and Final Fantasy Legend, um, they're all pretty simplistic and not really taking a lot of risks. They're all very sort of like... It is kind of like going back to those first few years of the Famicom's life where, you know, everything was on an N-ROM cartridge and barely had any memory and couldn't do scrolling and so forth. So Mario Land, despite its kind of primitive graphics, uh, was an attempt to sort of take the, almost like the aesthetics of um, Game & Watch, like very simplistic, and translate those into... Something, you know, on the scale of what you'd expect from a Mario game on NES. And of course the game ends up being like half as long as a real Mario game, if even that. But, you know, given given the limitations of the format, I, I feel like it kind of, I feel, feel like it lays its case out pretty effectively. Like, hey, yeah, you've got a real Mario experience here. It's smaller than you're used to and a little weird, but it's still Mario and there's more like this coming. And, you know, there were a lot of good... Console caliber games that came out on Game Boy. So, uh, so it's kind of, uh, you know, a good, like a statement of intent. Yeah. It's like, you know, Babe Ruth pointing to the stands before he hits his home run. That's what I think. <laughs> so, anyway, any, uh, any final thoughts on Mario Land or on the rest of the Game Boy launch lineup? Hmm. Like, do you think it was a strong lineup? I mean, it's only four games, but was that enough?
1: Um, it's to to say either, you know, from today's perspective or from the perspective when it came out, I, I honestly thought when it came out that, um, you know, especially if we're going to imagine it was four kids um, who could buy five, four or five games at the same time. Um, I remember thinking it was plenty. Um, today, I don't know if I would feel the same way. It's not, you know, I wouldn't say it's the strongest lineup, but it's certainly diverse. Um, It kind of offered something, you know, if someone wanted a puzzler, if someone wanted uh, an action game, if someone wanted a sports game. um, So it threw at least a broad array out there, even if they're not all top-notch.
0: Yeah, I think this is one case where the American market benefited from localization delays. Now everyone releases their systems pretty much simultaneously. So everyone gets pretty much the same thing all over the world. Um, But, you know, in, in 1989... It was actually unusual for a game system to come out so closely in America on the heels of its Japanese release. It was like yeah. three, four months, which is just pretty much unheard of. I mean, Famicom was two years, more than two years, um, before the NES came out. Master System was the same way. By by 1989, the uh, PC engine, the Mega Drive were, all, were already out in Japan, but I don't think the TurboGrafx-16 and the... Genesis, the the American counterparts of those systems launched until after Game Boy. Yeah. So you know there were there was like a year between uh, localized releases, if not more. Um, so you know we we got the game system pretty quickly here, the Game Boy, uh, and and despite the local you know, the the sort of short delay, we still benefited from that because by the time the system came out in the U.S. There were quite a few other games out in Japan that could make it here. Tennis and most importantly, Tetris. Uh, that was a pretty big deal. So um, so I feel like the American launch lineup was a little bit stronger. I mean, it came with Tetris as a pack-in, so that's kind of a win right there. Yeah. But yeah, I would say for the time, this was pretty much what you'd expect from a Japanese launch. Uh, you know, the Famicom launched with three games. The Sega Mark III launched with just a few games, I think, PC Engine launched with two games. I think Mega Drive launched with three. I mean, big launch lineups just weren't a thing back then. Like, you you didn't have Dreamcast-level launch lineups. (laughs) And hell, in in Japan, Dreamcast launched with three games. It had, like, two dozen here, but that's because of a localization delay. So, yeah, it's just, you know, kind of a sign of the times, I think. And like you said, it was a good, diverse lineup. It wasn't, you know... Necessarily something for everyone, but it was pretty close. You had sports, you had arcade, you had action, and then you had, like, you know, for your grandparents, they could play Yakuman. Yeah. Um, so, a, you know, a pretty good first case. Um, if we want to look at it as in, in terms of a modern launch windows, yeah, it was great. There was a lot out by the end of 1989 for Game Boy, especially in Japan. It was 25 games. Here in America, I think we had six, but, you know, we'll take what we can get. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, that's that's kind of a look back at Game Boy's launch. Um, I guess that's enough for this episode. We we've talked about an hour, which is plenty to say about uh, four Game Boy games <laughs> from twenty six years ago. <clears throat> so I think we'll we'll call it quits here. And at some point in the future, who knows how long it'll take? We've been trying to record this for like a year now. Um, we'll get back and, you know, talk about some of the, the early games that came out for Game Boy, uh, going beyond just the launch, Uh, but that does wrap it up for this episode. So thank you, Brian, for joining me. Um, if you want to tell, tell the world where they can find you online, that would be great.
1: Oh, yes. Uh, my blog is the gay gamer and pretty much the URL is thegaygamer.com. I'm on Twitter, Facebook tumblr wherever you
0: want to go for social media so and thank you for having me on I appreciate it yeah well I appreciate you taking the time um I do have to ask though are you the gay gamer like <laughs> I feel like I know a lot of gamers who are gay <laughs> well but you know I
1: I started blogging in 2007 not that there weren't you know self-proclaimed gay gamers back then and I you know I definitely do not consider myself the gay gamer but at the time so it's a
0: it's a soft article yes. there. like it's a definitive <laughs> article but but a gentle one
1: it was it was more that at the time um i and i wish i knew um gaygamer.net i don't know if it existed at the time but at the time the whole reason i started blogging was that i did not know of any other people like myself out there so that's why i started my blog and named it that <laughs>
0: so okay fair enough <laughs> um anyway so yeah thanks again Brian and uh thanks anyone who happened to download and listen to this